Thanks for tuning in to episode 30 of the Creative Strings podcast, featuring today's guest, composer, guitarist, Rez Abbasi. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Today's guest, Rez Abbasi, has been one of my favorite musicians to listen to and to sometimes play with uh, for over 20 years. I've had the good luck to tour with him, and I consider him a friend. In this episode, I'm excited that he's going to get to share with you um, not only some of his recordings, which are awesome, but also his approach to composition, teaching, practice, and more. This summer, um, the first week of July in 2018, Rez will be one of the featured faculty at the Creative Strings Workshop. So that means that if you attend the workshop, you'll get a chance to work with him up close and personal. To learn more about the Creative Strings Workshop, just go to my website, christianhouse.com slash education. We have two sponsors to thank profusely for their support of this podcast. Um, the first sponsor I'd like to thank is Electric Violin Shop. They are the place to go with any questions about electric string playing and related subjects. And the easiest way to um, to utilize them as a resource is just to call them anytime during business hours and simply ask them any question you want. Uh, to get their phone number, just go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. Our other sponsor that I'd like to thank is Yamaha. I've worked with Yamaha over 20 years. I play their other uh, electric violins and they have only continued to improve and get better in all of their electric string line over the last 20 years. And not only that, but they support string education in so many ways. So when you do call Electric Violin Shop or when you're out looking at electric string instruments, look no further than the Yamaha line of electric string instruments. String players depend on Yamaha. And now let's get into this episode with Rez Abbasi. Abbasi, thank you so much for joining on the Creative Strings podcast. Good to see yes, you. Yes, absolutely. Good to kind of see you. It's technology. <laughs> um, Skype call from Asheville to Manhattan. You're uh, up, uptown Manhattan. Uh, Harlem, right? yeah. Well, I want to start right off the bat and just ask you, you know, our, a lot of our listeners are classical string players um, or bowed string players that are interested in branching out in different ways into creative music. You've been for a long time, one of my, you know, kind of like a hero, really, and a mentor to me, and somebody that I look up to in terms of a composer and a player. And uh, I've learned a lot just from listening to your music and from us playing. I was wondering, could you share maybe a, a one or two things that you do from a practice standpoint when you're just practicing improvisation? Yeah. Um, funny, I was just asking myself if I should 
changed my practice routine just yesterday uh, because I I tend to like I tend to just not do much. Actually, it's really weird. Uh, I I feel like I'm actually taking a lazy approach in the last number of years. Like I don't know how many, maybe that's a decade. But what I do is simply allow the stuff to happen and like sometimes I'll pick a key it will just cut like D minor and I'll improvise around that for a half like a half an hour an hour straight and just to see how uh in and out I can get and how much juice I can pull for, from D minor not only harmonically and melodically but also texturally believe it or not you know like am I just playing straight up or am I actually juicing the notes in some sort of other way, not necessarily exotic, like Indian, but any other way, you know, uh, am I making, am, am I keeping it interesting for myself as a listener? And furthermore, as an objective listener, if, if, if I can get to that point, uh, that's, that's one of the big things. And then sometimes I'll do that over changes also, like whatever, a tune, I'll just, when, once I get tired of that, I'll say, okay, let's go into even solar or something, something very simple, uh, just to throw in a few more changes. And then I'll start the whole process again. I'll, I'll play inside for a while and I'll really get to solidify the changes. And then I'll, I'll just say I'm bored of this and what else can we do? And, and it's endless. I mean, you can do it that way or you can also transcribe other people as well and, you know, find out what they're doing. And that's, a, that's what I was talking about a second ago. I feel like I need to, maybe step up my game a little bit after 10 years of doing this to be honest. And, and maybe I've run out of my own ideas, put it that way. So, so it's sort of like you're, you're setting up these two different ways, one way to sort of get ideas, other language from other players, transcribe, check out what they're doing and use it as source material. On the other hand, just sort of uh, mining whatever comes to you. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, essentially there are only 12 notes here. So uh, with the octaves also. So if I can't come up with various ways of playing over, let's say, D minor with those 12 notes, then why am I going to turn to someone else to do that? You can also see that as a lazy way too, you know, like, okay, let me transcribe. Well, then it's, they only have 12 notes, right? So hitting the mallet and just getting, you know, some kind of sculpture of solos that you can you can come up with. That's great. Well, I'd I like to ask one other question about when you, I guess your training, I mean, from what I understand, you grew up listening to a lot of traditions, certain traditions, like maybe rock guitar or maybe blues guitar, maybe straight ahead jazz guitar. Is that more or less true? Did, did I grow up listening to that? Yeah, and practicing it, transcribing it, that sort of thing. Did you do that when, oh, yeah. you, were, when you were younger? Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely honed back into that kind of world once in a while, listening to people like Bud Powell, who's a very famous, amazing pianist. I was having discussions about him the other day. So it's, it never stops. But yeah, I, I did much more of that when I first started jazz at 16 years old through whatever. Again, solidifying what I felt was somewhat of a vocabulary to shoot off from. Uh, it's partly me, but I need to sort of help devise myself devise myself something else that is is, is a little bit more uh, stretching uh, uh, or maybe away from that. And, and really, that's an organic process of just looking inside. But kind of like finding your own vocabulary in a way? or Vocabulary comes in so many ways. It's a lot of personality in, a vo in vocabulary. It's not just the way you choose notes. I mean, it's, it's your tone. It's the phraseology. There's so many aspects to vocabulary, uh, but we, we tend to think of it as like, okay, the note choice. I mean, that's 
that's only very little of personality for for everybody. You listen to one person, you listen to the other, you hear something totally different, but they got the same notes. So, you know, it's a phenomenon. It's 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 pretty amazing. So, would it be more accurate to say that after you were twenty five and had spent years uh, maybe imitating to some degree some of the other traditional players that you heard or different artists that you heard that you went that you sought to start finding your own voice or crafting your own voice is that a better way to say it yeah but it's it's strange because it it started way before that i mean i think when i was 16 i was actually imitating if you will people like george benson i mean i mean there's so many there's i can't even i don't even want to go down the list i mean imitating that meaning transcribing and playing those ideas particularly right on the guitar uh with the soloist cranked up you know and playing with them that's the closest i've gotten to imitation but after that it really hit me when i when i started listening to jim hall actually there was something transparent about his playing that just sounded like paint hitting the canvas and almost in a very modern way yet rooted and when i so when i discovered that i was like okay there's something you know there's a voice here that that gets out of the norm of these lines that I'm, I'm hearing from other instruments like saxophones and, and piano and whatnot. And that's where Benson was coming from. These two guys are a big uh, part of my period when I, when I started uh, with Benson and, 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 uh, and Jim Hall. And then I discovered Alan Holdsworth, which is another thing altogether, but equally as ridiculous and amazing. So my imitation period sort of stopped when, when that happened, you know, when I discovered these few people um, and really dug into their playing. Holdsworth, I can never imitate at all. So I did, that was just more oral and wishful thinking. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. So how old were you when you made your first uh, record? I, I was 25 when I did my first uh, record called Third Ear. I did half of the record thinking that, you know, I would shop it and, and get a big record label and all that. Back in the days, it was it was possible. But, but that never happened for me. I've always had this problem that my music's sort of in the middle. And I, it, I'm trying to embrace it all my life, thinking that maybe that's a good thing. But it's not easy to work with sometimes business-wise because it's not straight ahead. And it's not this real electric fusion and it's not totally out but it sort of contains all these elements in one without sounding like the elements and so i wasn't able to get anything so i ended up recording the second half a year and a half later or something like that and that was the combination of two bands and i put that on a record and it, it sounded kind of similar it was pretty interesting i wonder if you could set up maybe one of the tunes off of that record for us Maybe you could choose one of those tunes and tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. A tune called Prana, which in Hindu yogic language means energy, the energy within. And that was with the first band that I had. I'm proud of it, thinking how individual it was. I mean, to, to put out something like that at the time, it really didn't sound like anything. And it still kind of doesn't. You know, I'm very happy about that. It was geared towards improvisation itself, like most of my tunes I, I write only for the composition themselves and have the soloists within that structure because I think I feel like the composition really has to be strong. But th this one, this particular tune, I kind of wrote because I wanted to veer off into a, a land of freedom, almost like Ornette Coleman. I mean, he writes phenomenal melodies, and uh, and then there's so much to hold on to when you start soloing. And so I wanted to try and grapple with that world a little bit. So that is. That is a tune, a very simple, kind of beautiful, melodic 
idea with a couple different sections and in between those it's just wide open there's there's no specific elements in there other than what we just heard intervallically so it's free improvisation yeah and i had i had a phenomenal band i mean I had peter erskine and, uh, mark johnson you know those were my heroes at the time and they still are and bob minster was on soprano saxophone i was really dabbling with synth guitars i used something that exploited the harmonies a little bit with the synth and it was really fun it was interesting to get into that texture with with these guys we did one take I, I, it's funny because i was asking them, hey can we do another take and they're like no no man that was a good take you know we <laughs> you know we we're just going to imitate ourselves so that was a learning lesson right there i was like imitate yourself why would you do that now but later on i understood what they were saying because it's it's free right so then you're going to imitate that freedom and that's not freedom so mind game kind of that you, you learn with, with these guys okay so now we're going to listen to the title track off of the album third ear this song is called third ear we're going to listen for the melody we're going to listen for some of the free improvisation with great band with including peter erskine and others So I wonder if you could tell us a little more about prana. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wrote this this line that was kind of a, a long, fast line, and I thought that was a melody. And I, I, went, I was going to a comp compositional teacher at the time. He said, "Well, you need to write a melody." And I said, well, well, "What is this?" You know, he played on the piano, and he said, "Well, that's more episodic. It's not a melody." So he said, "You need to write eight more bars of a melody." And I thought that was genius what he came up with the thought that he came up with that and i was like yeah that's true you know because us jazz guy he's a classical teacher edgar grana is his name he used to teach michael brecker so i just thought that was really cool because you know us jazz guys we tend to write very liney sometimes you know linear like a lot of notes and just for him to say that was more episodic than melodic I just it just rang true for me right away. So I wrote another like 16 bars or something, and and again 
just the idea that he says write eight bars, I mean, that's eight empty bars or 16 empty bars in a melody. That's a good compositional lesson right there because you need to put up the empty bars first and fill them in rather than have the material already. It's a it's a backwards process, but it's a very good one because the composition will tell you and dictate what you need to write rather than you hearing everything and writing it first. It's an interesting thing. So it, it sort of turned it around for me and I thought, okay, look, I need eight bars here. I need a B section. I need this or this too needs this. And then it was sort of fill in the blanks kind of thing. And that really helped me uh, gain some momentum in, 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 in composition. 11 records later, that's you know, that's the kind of way I write. What does the tune need? What is it saying to me? Are you saying that you want to know what the form is first sometimes? Like, okay, this is going to be a 32-bar form with an A and a B, and then you write to that form? Is that what you're saying? That could be, but uh, that's not exactly it. It's, it's more of what the composition needs. It's not that I need to have a form laid out and then fill in the blanks. I didn't mean it that way. I meant like, I wrote this episodic thing on prana. That that was what I thought was a melody, right? And so he just like he pointed out to me that it needs this. And so that idea of needing, you know, what the composition needs, that's a very classical I I mean, it could be anything, but it it seems like coming from a classical mindset and uh to me that was really important to 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 note note that lesson and and say wow okay th- this is what it needs I, I went to some other chords and stuff but it wasn't like a great melody later on so he's like no you need to this is episodic where's the melody and i was like wow okay so so if and if you continue with that mindset what do you, what else does it need okay well it does need a b section it's not that it, i'm going to put a b c d a b c and then fill it in because then that's trite and it's not it might it may not work right so it's more of um having patience with the composition and letting the composition speak to you in its nature in its natural way which which is a weird a strange mind thing it's like stepping away from it and at the same time involving yourself is very interesting so this is that's that's really great now to understand this terminology of episodic it sounds like you wrote this event, this melody, whatever this was, this kind of triplet thing, and it had some chords to it. It was like a small event instead of like a main melody. Is that another way to say that it was episodic? Like, how, what do you mean by episodic? Episodic meaning that it's a feeling, and it's a gestural feeling in a way. I mean, I'm putting my own words into it. I don't know what he exactly meant by it but this is what i gathered since since there's so much direction in in all those notes and they're consistent triplets there's no like breath and whatnot is a it's like this heightened state that starts in 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 and sort of in the same area and in a way i think he meant that it needs a release and it needs to go to a melodic statement because that's not necessarily a melodic statement. I mean, for jazz guys, yeah, okay, it's, that's where I was coming from. It's a melodic statement, but it's it's a feeling, a, a, a quick kind of feeling uh, rather than a singable vocal-oriented uh, melody. You're not going to sing that in the shower. Huh. Okay, so we're going to listen to Prana now off of Third Ear.
<laughs> that's great that's great this is from when 1992 uh prana was yeah 1991 something like that and then and then third year was 92 as i recall so yeah. um how much time do you devote to practicing your instrument improvising mostly as from what i understand all of your practice is improvisation correct me if i'm wrong as opposed to composition or do they just sort of organically flow into each other they, they can you know there's different levels of practice i mean sometimes i'm practicing linear like soloing and and that that has very little to do with composing something i may come up with a little line that i like but i'm not going to like put it in on the paper and start composing when i start going into chords and stuff when i start learning new chords then i always come up with some possibility of, of uh, something like a little vibe that 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 needs to be uh, gelled together with the larger composition you know so it, it it is a little bit of both but when i'm when i'm practicing linearly and soloing i'll i'll usually turn on a metronome and it's more about just fleshing it out and just getting into the guitar and, and checking out my my technique and you know getting out of that square of let's say d minor if, if that's where i'm at or you know opening up the box a little bit trying to open open up my vocabulary that's that's what that's about it's interesting that you mentioned guitar technique because i think for a lot of classical musicians they might see part of their practice just exclusively related to technique practicing for intonation practicing for shifting facility these kinds of things i'm wondering if you ever really just practice for technique or if it's always combined with improvisation or harmonic internalization or rhythmic internalization yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, there are technique exercises that I've developed and that I've learned from others, and I do do those. I used to do them more back in the day, but now it's if I, if it's not applicable directly to some kind of linear motion, some kind of line, some kind of improv improvising, then I get bored of it too quickly, and I just don't want to do it because it doesn't. You know, if it's not if it's not actually playing, then what the what's the point of it? In a way, of course, we, us guitar players don't have to worry about intonation per se. So, you know, I'm not comparing it to you as a violinist. I mean, you probably need to work on technique for, for other reasons. I'm saying just muscularly, you know, like just physically, there's no point of bashing into, into, into playing like that and trying to play really strong when it's not the music you're going to play. 
I would I would assume that classical guitarists would feel differently. I would assume that classical guitarists devote hours and hours to technique, but uh, but like you said, it's probably related to a concerto or a sonata or something that they're working on also, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it's, it's related to musical output, I, I would think. I mean, I think classical guitarists, they do have more technical exercises than jazz people, I think. Uh, well, I studied classical for a year, and I, I, I was definitely working on certain strokes and things like that, and that was understandable for, for those pieces I was trying to learn. And they weren't necessarily applied directly to the pieces, but I, when I played the pieces, I realized, oh boy, this is why I learned the technique. But with, with improv, I mean, there's no set rule. Like everybody, you know, you see all these guitarists with different right hands, like they're playing totally differently right it's, it's it's not equivalent it's not the same same kind of phenomena I, I don't think well and and related to that question i wonder if you would say has your has your technique gotten stronger over the years or has it at all di- dissipated in certain ways or you do you even think about it that way well that's interesting uh you know what i'm messing with right now i'm, I'm actually working on on repositioning my right hand now it's not like i, I want to play faster or anything like that i just want to be more consistent some days like i you know i'm unstoppable i can play whatever i want and then some days i just feel like i'm I'm trying too hard. I don't know what it is. I'm trying to figure out why is it that, you know, some days I can do then the other days. And then, you know, I'm trying to figure out that point of, of diminishing returns. Like, I don't know. Do you have that too? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's great. So it sounds like you're still discovering new things about your technique. I guess my question was more about, and I'll relate it to myself. I mean, when I was 19, you know, I was practicing classical concerto repertoire. So there were certain you know, technical things that I was really on top of. And now that I don't use those same technical things as much, I'm not as on top of them, like a certain vibrato, for example, or even maybe my intonation might not be as strong as it was when I was 19. And so sometimes I notice that like I have sacrificed some level of technical precision and certain kinds of technical chops, although I think that I continue to grow musically in other ways. But I'm just wondering if that's similar for you yeah uh no i don't i don't think so i mean i'm you know i mean i i've changed picks on occasion i've changed guitar gauge the torque of the string i mean i go through different things i think i'm settled with what i i like and i feel comfortable with, but i'm still like trying to discover like what's what's the most economical way of picking what's the most uh natural way my friend just turned me on to some bluegrass players and he was like, oh, you got to check these guys out because they've done a whole study on this and their picking is very natural and this and that and this is the way it works and mandolin players and the good, good ones have pretty phenomenal right hand technique. So I'm just starting to get into that now. See if, there, if there's some benefit from working on bluegrass or, or maybe not playing that music, but just seeing how they, they hold the pick. And I think I'm close to, to, to how they're doing it, but it's a different thing. With jazz, you know, you're playing a lot more chromatically, so it doesn't quite work the same. It's really a strange thing. It's all a nuance, you know? Well, and I find that as an improviser, you can play as little as you want. You have a choice not to play a certain technique you know you have that choice it challenges your technique in a completely different way than playing a a piece of written repertoire obviously well that's great man i appreciate your insights on that i i wonder if we could look at some of your more um recent albums maybe we looked at your first one i wonder if maybe you'd want to talk to us a little bit about your most recent album and maybe a tune or two off of that is there anything you'd like to tell us about the latest album you've done 
Yeah, it's with this band that that has done three records. It's sort of a trilogy. I did the first one, and this is the third third one. Uh, the first one uh, was was, and I mean loosely combining the idea of Hindu Hindustani music, North Indian music, with jazz and in the harm, harmonic content of jazz. And my wife Kieran sang on that. So that really helped bring those two worlds together. And then the second one was sort of emphasizing Kowali music, which is a Pakistani music form. It's like the gospel of Pakistan. It's really upfront and all about groove and all about that whole thing, you know, the power, praise music. Uh, the first one's called Things to Come. The second one's called Suno Suno. That means listen, listen. And then this one, uh, Unfiltered Universe, is, again, loosely sort of addressing the Carnatic aspect of music that I've learned, uh, which Carnatic, Carnatic means South Indian music, not North Indian, but South Indian. And that's very... Uh, highly rhythmical even more so than north i've played with with a lot of dancers and i've played a lot with rudresh mahantapa he's a saxophone player and he's highly influenced by that and in the last 10 years i've done a lot of work with with this whole school of thought i felt like it was time to like do the third record with these guys and accentuate a little bit of that it is a little bit i mean it's not it can't be like suddenly i'm writing carnatic music i mean i don't even want to go there but but it's 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 got hints of influences, and um, a, a tune called like for instance dance number on that record because I know you're gonna ask what tune, but uh, dance number reminded me of how these dancers would step and, and like let go of certain beats and so the the, the cycle kind of turns around. It's, it's there's a whole, whole school of thought behind carnotic music instead of sort of implementing direct rhythmical ideas or melodic ideas. I sort of this intuition of, of having played with all these people for so long and letting that come out as as is, you know, as it, as it, as it did. And uh, I, I kept it that way, you know, uh, throughout the record. So but that's one particular tune called Dance Number. You probably hear it right away. Like, oh, yeah, okay, I can imagine you know, that kind of thing. Awesome. So we're going to listen to Dance Number off of Unfiltered Universe.
If you're a string player and you'd like to learn more and even work with Rez Abbasi alongside many other world-class faculty, you can. The first week of July in 2018, our 16th annual Creative Strings Workshop and Festival will take place in Columbus. So check it out on my website at christianhouse.com forward slash education. Look for the summer conference or just hit me up. Email me chris at christianhouse.com. It's going to be a great summer. And part of what makes it special is the ability to work in small chamber ensembles where essentially you'll be a member of the faculty's band. So in this case, uh, you could be a member of Reza Bassi's band for a week. At what point did you start thinking about incorporating consciously or explicitly or whatever you want to call it, uh, more of your um, heritage into, into your music? Or were you thinking about that 25 years ago? Or was that something that was more recent? I've been thinking about it for at least 25 years. I mean, my household had some of that music around. It wasn't straight up classical sitar all the time, nothing like that. But there was hints of that in, in the movies we would listen to and, and or watch. My father would sing actually a lot of those old tunes. In the beginning, I was really shy to bring this this into into the world, you know, into jazz and whatnot. I thought it would be a little too sort of exotic and it wouldn't make sense. Heighten this this idea that, oh, there's, here's a Indo, in, Indian Pakistani guy or Pakistani guy playing jazz. You know, so for a while, I, did, I didn't know what to do with it. But then... You know, when I graduated college, I went to India for two months, loosely hung out with and studied with Alaraka, who's one of the, who's Akir Hussain's father. And he's one of the, you know, com prime components of, of tabla, uh, which is a North Indian instrument, uh, percussion instrument. And uh, I studied mostly with his disciple, Ray Spiegel, for a year when I got back. And so I was really getting into the rhythms and and, and, and the ideas and, and, the, and the feel. Actually, the feel had a big part part of it. You know, it wasn't actually rhythm studies or melodic studies. It was also a feeling that I just almost nostalgic because I had this in my ear, you know. Um, so I, I sort of aligned myself, realigned myself to that. And that's when, you know, I did that first record, like Prana, Actually, for instance, that has a feel of that. It's not Indian or anything like that, but it has a feel of that there's, you know, that record actually I, I did after I got back from India. So there was something buzzing around. Uh, now, whether it showed up in my compositions or not, I, probably not as much as it has in, in late. 
it, it was definitely you know in in my blood at that time even more so so you know it's it, it, it was a matter of just shining a light on this stuff i never wanted to implement it so directly although i did use this electric sitar guitar for a while which you remember and that was very pronounced and here it is you know the indian thing you know phosphor colors and you know that's another tune things like that i mean i did use those intro and then i put those to bed for a while also because i just thought well i'm not necessarily hearing that anymore so so that was in my my 20s i was really in it kind of like you know bringing that and my 30s actually it, it's a it's a lifelong process i mean there's i know nothing about indian music and i hardly know anything about jazz so <laughs> yeah. so and now i'm getting now i'm checking out bluegrass so one lifetime is just not enough you know look i mean the bottom line is if i can produce music that sounds creative i don't even care what it where or what it is where it came from it doesn't have to be rooted in indian music doesn't have to be rooted in jazz it doesn't have to be that's all mental human kind of ideas these genres and whatnot although there there is some credence to this this idea that music in india has a certain thing and jazz is an african-american born music yeah that's i'm not denying that i'm just saying at this point at this level I'm not interested in that, you know, and especially with so much music coming out. Look, if you can come out with something that sounds, you know, somewhat unique and somewhat fresh, you'd be passing this with flying colors. I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, and so what else can, can I ask for, you know? But there, there is another tune uh, called uh, Pearl, which I dedicated to Daniel Pearl uh, off of my Snake Charmer record. I'll send you that because that has the same phosphor colored chords and then and then it goes into a different dimension great and that's what dave liebman and all that we'll listen to a little bit of pearl and we'll and we'll also maybe play some of uh phosphor colors as well so people can hear the acoustic textures um daniel pearl was a violinist and a journalist right i didn't know he was a violinist i i, I knew he was a journalist yeah he was a violinist i'm pretty sure he, yeah wait i think you're right i'm pretty sure he was a violinist yeah i think I, he was definitely into music <laughs> <laughs> yeah ironically huh? cool
listened to some of Pearl. We listened to some of uh, Phosphor Colors, or we will be listening to some of Phosphor Colors. Um, I think it's great that you talked a little bit about, you know, this tension between, or the the idea of musical tradition and how it's wedded to cultural traditions or identity, cultural identity. I'm just curious if you, what your take on that, as far as I know, you, you spent the first couple years of your life in Pakistan, but then you... You essentially grew up in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm wondering how your perspective as a, as a Pakistani-American, how you feel about the kind of discussions about cultural identity and musical identity that happen as they relate to jazz and in, and in the United States. Like, Do you feel like you have a different perspective on that than, than other people from other cultural traditions? Like, for example, if, if I, as a, uh, as a white American, if I wanted to, to study Indian music or Pakistani music, is there anything that I should be mindful of, I guess? Uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Um, no, I, I, I don't think so, man. I mean, for me, music is, is, is carte blanche. I mean, it's like if someone gets offended with something, that's their problem. I don't necessarily want to see you, you get into Pakistani music and then start wearing the clothes on stage and, 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 and you know, look the part also. You know, that I, I wouldn't be offended, but I would probably giggle at that. <laughs> but that 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 is up, up to you. So you can do that still. Uh, there might be a, a price to pay, you know, for something like that, just in terms of like perception of what people think. But the idea of music, just music. I mean, look what John McLaughlin did, you know, with Shakti and, and how he brought that into the Mai Vishnu Orchestra. I mean, there's nothing to laugh about there. That's phenomenal stuff. And you know, uh, especially for the 70s, it was revolutionary. And, you know, uh, that's it's funny I say that because that's not even someone I've been influenced by at all. But I, I can definitely give them the props, you know, 100 percent for for going to India, for, for assimilating that, for eating that and, and, and basically putting it out in his own in his own uh, music. And it's and he really added to the jazz. I mean, to the jazz vernacular, uh, especially of the 70s, um, where things were really starting to fly open in terms of, you know, uh, electronics coming in and guitar, for that matter, and and all kinds of stuff, rock and roll. And he really shaped a, a whole era of, of music. Um, so so it does to me, it doesn't, color doesn't matter. Now, if he was thinking, oh, boy, maybe I shouldn't cross over and, and mention India and all that, then we, w- we may not have that music. And he may not have spawned, you know, other people doing, you know, creative things uh, within those brackets, you know, or within that framework. I know there's certain cultures that get really uptight if you do something of theirs and and it, it's maybe not, it's not congruent with like exactly the way the tradition is. You'll always have those types, even in Indian music. And there are them in Pakistani music. You know, if you don't do it this way, you're 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 out of here. But that's okay because you can go to a different space and create that. It's it's all human experience, as far as I'm concerned. You know, the rest is illusion. Great. One one more question, and then I'd love to uh, have have another tune that we can go out on. I'd like to ask you your take on you know the business of music because you've had your own career for 20 years as a composer doing very individual music uh not not what people necessarily necessarily would call commercial music and i mean now you're getting 
a lot of success from my perspective. I mean, you're playing some of the major festivals, you're getting some great press and recognition, which I feel has been really overdue for you. But I wonder if there's anything that you would recommend to people in terms of pursuing their career as a independent artist, you know, as a creative artist. Are there any main things that you do, like maybe even just like kind of your weekly habits and, and practice? Like, what do you do to sustain your career? What are some of the habits that you um, and actions that you take on a weekly level to uh, to keep activity going, to keep generating records, getting gigs, that sort of thing? Well, it's a it's a strange thing, as you know. I mean, I mean, you're, you you would be able to talk to people much better than I would about this. I mean, you're really a self man, self made man. I mean, it's it's uh, I, I have nothing but uh, amazement at, at how you're conducting yourself these days and have been for years. Uh, but you know, uh, but it, it's an individual thing. It's, it's very different for everybody. I mean, one of the things that's hard to get used to, and this is something that's probably going to happen to most, is the flux of of, uh, of how how the career happens, you know how most of these careers happen. Uh, I mean, some some months it's 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 like there's nothing happening, you know. Maybe not for the whole month, but I mean, it, there are pockets that you know you need to be flexible with and and not be discouraged, uh, uh, you know. Unless it's month after month after month, then you got to start thinking about the big picture. But you know, if, if you're doing, a, if you have a great month and then you have a terrible month or a sour month, then you got to realize that that is just the, the, the nature of the beast. And the, the quicker you can embrace that aspect of it and not trying to be, a, and not try to be a star, you know, like, cause you know, it's, it's easy to see people on Facebook doing things and you're like, oh man, every week they've got some major or wherever, not even Facebook, but just, it's easy to see people who are just successful and then compare yourself and think, okay, man, I feel like quitting. I've been through that many times and we still all do that once in a while, most of us, but, um, because you're never going to be at that, at that place you think you could get to one day, you know, then you get older and you realize, well, I don't even have that many years. So what am I striving for? You know, that is the idea that the path is the, and the journey is the success, not the success out there. I mean, you got to get that in your head right away. Uh, but in terms of monetary reality, I mean, you do as many things as you can. I mean, one thing I did that was work at record stores when there were record stores. You try and do everything that that gets you closer to this, the music, in a, in a sense. So a record store, for instance, is a, it was a good thing because, I, you know, I, I had promos coming in and out. I can take 10 promos home and I was listening to all kinds of stuff and getting paid that measly check, but, but also I had a record out too, and I was selling the heck out of my record at the store. I don't know if you remember that, but you know, <laughs> but you know, yeah. and it was just, <laughs> it was just a part-time gig, right? So it wasn't a big deal, but you know, it was a little bit of a check and I also sold the promos, you know, so made more money. So you have to think creatively and, and you also have to find ways like, you know, I mean, look, I had to borrow from my family too. Look, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of saying that. If that's one way you have to do it, like for that first record, I mean, that was, that wasn't paid by for me, yeah, from me. I, I couldn't afford it, you know. But that is the way it is. I mean, some people have members, various members, not necessarily mom and dad, but 
you know, cousins and aunts and uncles. And, you, know, you, you just sort of, and now, now you have that whole phenomenon of kick, uh, Kickstarter or whatever, you know, these kinds of things back then you didn't, but now, you know, you don't have to rely on family only. You can rely on fans, you know, which is another thing, you know, like, so if you're, if you're, if your stuff is good enough, people will, help you out in some manner. But the other thing is, you know, you got to be objective with yourself. I mean, that's, that's the hard part. Also, you know, dream, dreaming is one thing and it's a great thing. And it's great to be optimistic. Uh, We all need that, you know, injections once in a while, you know, but uh, it's also, you don't, you don't want to let the optimism and the dreams override the reality of things. You know, I've, I've taught people who to me just don't really have that professional touch on the instrument and they can't get around the instrument and they don't also, they don't practice hard enough and they never did. But yet in their eyes, they want to become one of the, one of the people on the scene and really work all day long and, you know, get, get all these write-ups and being downbeat and all this. And I'm like, you know, there are people like that that I've known for, for years and I don't know what to say to them. I mean, we have, sometimes we, if I'm too objective with them, too too truthful, then it it, it becomes very tension filled. So I don't say much, but but so you have to be objective. To, you know, if you if you're not cutting it, then you better look in the mirror and, and figure it out because you don't want to you don't want to kill yourself for for music either. You know, not literally, but you don't want to you know you don't want to hurt yourself and your ment- mentality and your family just because you want to be a star in music and this and that because that way we've all done that so so yeah whatever whatever way you can continue to do it and teaching is a huge huge element that's like that's like 80 percent of the whole jazz industry right now is teaching you know everybody does it every you know uh every college is like a you has a huge program everywhere you go and we've benefited off of those because we've done plenty of workshops in those you know we make our money on the road through those as well so it's a somewhat insular. When you've booked tours in the past, what's you, what's your process for booking a tour? How how far out do you start to book a tour typically? If you're going to just book a tour from scratch, or I don't even know if you do that, but well, I, I was. I mean, I'm taking a, a bit of a hiatus on on leading bands. I was just offered a festival um, in in July. The guy, excuse me, the guy asked for a specific band, so I decided to start opening up that door again. So I started booking, uh, we talked about, started booking a little bit of some other stuff around that. Uh, so if, if it just, if it falls on my lap, then, I, then I feel like, okay, I got to take advantage of it, but it's, it's not easy to ask that much anymore. You know, at this level, like you do have to put it out there like, Hey, you know, I want to take this band and, and do your festival or whatever, however, however you're going to word it. But um, it's at the same time, it's, it's, it's harder to to be to, to accept that disappointment of not getting it now too because then you start going okay what is this guy booking then you know like you start like degrading that that, that festival like oh what is this guy booking he, he said no to me you know so it's just an ego thing you know <laughs> when you get a little bit more up it's 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 a harder pill to swallow when you rejection is you know when you get rejected it's, it's hard to swallow that too and that's not the reason why i'm not doing it but it's one of the reasons coupled with the idea that it doesn't make a lot of money because you got to pay out so much, you know, the, the airfare, the, the sidemen, everything that if, if, if it's not like a lucrative couple festivals already in, in place, I don't do what, what I used to do, which is like book clubs for nothing and just play, 
and, and hope for, for the best. Uh, that's that's a little rough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? sure. Now, look, if I was the new Modesky Martin and Wood or something like that or Snarky Puppy, if that was the kind of music I was doing, then I may very well go and play door gigs and all that because you will get bigger, larger audiences. But my music is very... You know, you know how it is. It's a little heady. It's very artsy. It's very, you know, whatever. And not that there isn't, but there's a big difference. There just is. And we have to admit that. And it's a hard thing to, to, to get an audience to music that you can't really groove to all the time. That's just the, that's the bottom line. Yeah. Well, awesome. I'm so excited that you're going to be coming as our featured guest artist teacher this summer at the Creative Strings Workshop in July, uh, first week of July every summer this will be our 16th year really looking forward to hearing your music and giving people a chance to to work with you learn about composition get to play some of your music hopefully it's going to be a good experience for you to arrange some of your music for strings and hear it played by bowed strings and i just want to thank you for being on the podcast today and also just acknowledge you for your incredible dedication and persistence you've been a role model to me for as long as I've known you 20 years, continue to be amazed and you too. inspired by your music in every way. You're writing, you're playing. It's just, uh, it's awesome. I just consider myself so grateful to, that we're friends. And that- no, no, thank, thanks. And you've been an inspiration too, believe me. You know, it's, uh, you've kicked my butt, butt a few times on the road too, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go out with one piece. Can you give us one piece maybe and set it up that you'd like just to take out? Maybe some we haven't listened to as much. I don't know, maybe some of your electric stuff, if you like, or whatever you... I have two records with my acoustic, quote-unquote, band, uh, acoustic quartet, where I play um, acoustic guitar, steel string guitars, and th- there's a guy named Bill Ware on vibraphone. He played with Steely Dan and Groove Collective. Eric McPherson on drums and Stefan Crump on acoustic bass. But I did uh, a record of all fusion 70s material that got a lot of good hype and a lot of good play. Because I never really listened to that stuff. Remember I just told you McLaughlin's stuff. I never really heard that until very very recently and barely even that because something about it i was just more into bebop and i was at the age in the 70s no not the 80s that i learned jazz and so that whole fusion thing kind of slipped by from the 70s you know i re uh, sort of reconnected with that era and i still found it very electric <laughs> heavy so i unplugged everything and and did it acoustically and so a lot of people love that so there's a couple pieces if you want uh black market from Joe Zawinul is uh, one we did from Weather Report. And so that's a good one. And then Butterfly from Herbie Hancock. I did that on fretless acoustic guitar. So this this, this album also has a, a number of different acoustic guitars too. So I didn't say that. but So my main guitar, and then I pulled the frets off of one uh, another guitar. I had them pulled off, and, uh, and I found that to be really intriguing. So those are the two cuts, ones with the regular guitar and ones with the fretless guitar. Well, let's listen. We're going to listen to some of uh, Black Market and or Butterfly. And what are the what are the albums called? Uh, it's called Intents and Purposes. So we'll get off with with those. And uh, Rez, thanks again, man. Yes, absolutely, Christian. And uh, looking forward to hanging for a week and teaching and all that, of course.
Thanks as always for tuning in to Creative Strings Podcast. And please let me know what you think. Share this episode with friends. Send me your comments. You can put comments on the uh, website show notes page at christianhouse.com. Look for the blog. Or you can always just email me, chris at christianhouse.com, and let me know what you think. Again, I want to thank our sponsors, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, Uh, You can find their phone number. You can use them as a resource to learn about everything electric strings. And make sure if you do look at some electric uh, string instruments that you don't look any further than Yamaha. Do join us this summer at the Creative Strings Workshop. That's all I have to say. There's nothing like it. It's been a labor of love for me for over 16 years. Right now, with two months to go, we're just uh, in a full sprint organizing, making sure that every chamber ensemble is set up, that every experience is set up to facilitate the most connection, the most uh, musically uplifting, um, challenging, and fun experiences. And I just can't wait. (laughs) It's going to happen the first week of July. So now is the time. Um, If you have any questions about it whatsoever, uh, just send me an email, chris at christianhouse.com. Thank you so much again for checking out the Creative Strings podcast. We really appreciate your support. Leave a review if you're able to, and uh, we will see you next time.
Thank you.